Hello, this is Graham Brown, Senior Vice President and Principal with NextGen Advisors. Welcome to our podcast series. We're pleased to have our Government Affairs Advisor, Chris Emper, joining us today to discuss the recent U.S. election and how the results of that inform healthcare policy and regulatory matters in the months ahead. As usual, we have Dr. Marty Lustick and Dr. Benny Rabinowitz joining us in the conversation as well. Welcome, everyone. Hi, Graham. Hello. So we're all political junkies to some extent, and we'll do a bit of a round robin today, if that's okay, Chris, as we all have topics we'd like to cover with you. I'll get us going. After a great deal of anticipation, the results of the 2020 election are in, though legal challenges have things still up in the air a little bit. But Chris, let's start with what the results were at a big picture level, and what comes next between now and Inauguration Day on January 20th of next year. Great question, Graham, and just to, to go ahead and timestamp this response because these things came, tend to change day to day. I'll note that we're recording this uh, November 18th in the AM, so an hour later we could have a little bit of different news, but this is the picture as of today. Good point. It was quite an unusual election this year in that the results were not known um, on election night, and with uh, you know some of the, the mail-in ballot and absentee balloting provisions, it took a few days to, to count the ballots in some of the close swing states. Um, but as of the Saturday after the election of the presidential, the race was call, called by uh, all of the major news networks for former Vice President, now uh, President-elect uh, Joe Biden. Looking at the statistics in the presidential race right now in the Electoral College, Biden has 306 votes to 232 for Trump. And in the popular vote, although they're still counting uh, some of the mail-in ballots in several states, right now, as of this morning, it looks like 51% for Biden to 47.3 for Trump. Notably, this was a record high turnout election, and both of those popular vote counts exceeded the previous record of 69 million votes that uh, former President Obama received in the 2008 election. All that being said, the election is being contested by President Trump and his campaign. He has yet to concede and has active lawsuits in several uh, key states. As you mentioned, the timeline over the next couple of months and, and what we can expect here, um, each of the individual states is required to resolve any issues and, and possibly certify their elections by December 8th. December 14th, each of the state's congressional, uh, congressional delegations meet and ultimately votes to certify their election in the state, followed on January 6th by the U.S. Congress voting, convening all of the Electoral College in D.C. And at that point, we'll have an official president-elect, and then January 20th is the inauguration. Briefly, to also touch on, obviously, the, we have the presidential, but also the congressional uh, races, um, which were more of a, a split decision um, in terms of the expectations heading into the election. In the Senate, Senate uh, control is still to be determined. Um, and ultimately, we're looking at two Georgia runoff elections January 5th of next year. Currently, as a result of the election, elections two weeks ago, the split in the Senate coming into next year would be uh, 50 Republicans and 48 Democrats with those two open seats that will ultimately be determined by the Georgia runoffs. And why this might be so important is if you have a 50-50 split, the vice president, which will be Vice President Harris in 2021, will have the decisive 51st tiebreaker vote. So we, even though it could be a 50-50 split, essentially the, the Senate control is still up in the air. And then lastly, to talk 
margin uh, between the two parties as is currently the case. Um, going into the elections, uh, currently the Democrats are in control of the House with a majority of 232 seats to 197. Um, right now, there are still nine races that have not been called. But projecting for next year, you have 219 Democratic representatives and 207 Republican representatives. So already with the 197 currently, the Republicans in Congress are scheduled to pick up a, a minimum of 10 seats, potentially maybe up to 15. So looking into next year, we're going to have, you know, uh, likely a new, a new president and uh, a divided Congress, again, with the big asterisk around what happened in the Georgia Senate races. So I'd like to ask you, Chris, to talk a little bit more about the Georgia situation. If you project out whether the Republicans continue to hold the majority in the Senate or whether it ends up being 50-50 with the Democrats technically in control, what do you see the impact of those two different paths on the potential of the Biden administration to do anything uh, meaningful in health care? Uh, great question, Marty, and I, I think that's really uh, all a key issue, and all eyes have certainly turned to Georgia and will be turned to Georgia until January of next year. Based on their sort of unusual Senate race system, where neither candidate or, or multiple candidates in the election day race, and if, if no one candidate receives 50% of the overall vote, uh, the top two candidates go to what's called a runoff on January 5th of the next year, and that's the situation we have now. As a result of what happens in those elections, I think there will be a huge difference between 50 to 50, or ultimately with the vice president's vote, 51 to 50 versus 52 to 48 or 51 to 49. And the biggest difference is that you'll be looking at a leader in the Senate and the difference being between the current majority leader, McConnell, Mitch McConnell from Kentucky of the Republican Party, or uh, now the minority leader would, would be the majority leader, uh, Chuck Schumer of New York on the Democratic side. And even though the margins would be very slim and it would be difficult to pass on a single sole party line basis, major, major, you know, fundamental health care reform and other pieces of legislation with a 51 to 50 vote, having the ability to set the agenda in the Senate, as well as to shepherd through potentially any any difficult political nominations, which is a, a key issue heading into any transition for the, the president-elect and his team to be able to put forth the heads of uh, HHS and TMS and you know, the various different agencies, uh, especially in this time during the pandemic. But looking more, more broadly than just those control issues, much of what the Biden-Harris campaign was focused on from a healthcare policy platform were major um, reforms to expand healthcare coverage through adding a public health insurance option, um, lowering the eligibility age for the Medicare program from 65 to 60, um, and adding several other provisions to you know, sort of bolster and support the individual insurance exchanges under the Affordable Care Act. And pretty much all of those provisions would require legislative approval. So as much as there will be significant changes um, with the change in administration, it can't be understated how important, you know, even a one-vote majority in the Senate could be for the, the first two years of, of the incoming administration. And, and also point out from a historical perspective, just to put this in context, assuming the Republicans were to hold the Senate, President-elect Biden would be the first incoming president 
since George H.W. Bush in 1988, who assumed office without his party's control of both houses of, of Congress, both the House and the Senate. So definitely a, a different situation and certainly one that we have not seen in the 21st century uh, in uh, presidential and, and national politics. Hey, Chris, uh, given what will be happening in uh, Georgia uh, with just over two months left before Inauguration Day, what do you see the current administration prioritizing from a healthcare perspective between now and then? So that's another excellent question, and Dr. Betty, and as we look at you know, this transitional period, um, it, it, uh, every, every presidential transition sort of takes on a life of its own based on not only the individuals involved, but also the times we're living in. And right now in the, the midst of this, uh, you know, national pandemic, COVID crisis, which seems to be heading in a very, uh, you know, very troubling direction over the next few months, COVID is really the, the top issue for the current administration and will be the top issue, sort of the day one, job one issue for the incoming administration. But, uh, you know, thinking as to what happens from a healthcare policy perspective, you know, over the next two months um, of the outgoing Trump administration, um, most of their agenda and most of the things they uh, have been focused on, you know, are sort of out the door by now. Every presidential administration has a few you know, last-minute policies that uh, they might try to push out the door or, you know, more permanent changes to the administration processes, appointees that they'll try to make. Um, the one unusual thing this year is because of the pandemic, the, the Medicare physician fee schedule regulation that updates payment policies, quality programs, et cetera, each year is usually due out by November 1st. And this year there's an extension where it's scheduled to be out over the course of the next few weeks before December one to be implemented on January 1. So I think that's really, you know, finalizing those existing regulations that have been released in proposed form is out there. But also add for for physicians and physician groups out there, consider that much of the work that we've been focused on the last few years from a regulatory perspective has been bipartisan and will largely, at least directionally, remain bipartisan. Around this time, four years ago, we were dealing with the final passage of the 21st Century Cures Act, which was actually passed and signed into law in December of 2016 in the lame duck session. It was a you know, over 95% voters of both, both political parties you know, voting to approve that law. And, and the administration, uh, the current administration, has spent a large part of the last few years around health IT policy implementing the provisions of that law, which are still set to take effect over the course of the next few years. And I think um, along down the line from uh, you know, value-based care initiatives, implementation of alternative payment models, uh, ACOs, and other reforms. I, I think some of the bipartisan work that has you know, really started in the Obama, Obama and Biden administration, continued on to, into the Trump administration, will continue on uh, in, in a similar form in the Biden administration. Of course, there'll be some, some changes to key appointees some changes in policies, some changes in messaging. But I can also attest to someone who, who lives in the D.C. area and deals with a lot of the federal officials involved in writing regulations for these programs. Although some of the top uh, you know, level and, and sort of uh, cabinet level administ- administrators have changed places, the same uh, career officials and civil servants at these agencies have remained you know, for, for the past decade and have continued 
continue to shepherd these programs, regardless of, of which party is in control of the White House. Well, that's, that's a good segue. I'm going to do a follow-up question on what Betty just asked you. What do you see as the longer-term initiatives that a new Biden administration is likely to undertake? It sounds like you don't really feel like the trajectory is going to change much. There's some good bipartisan support for the efforts that have been made. But what, what kind of direction change might occur? So I think uh, it's interesting to, again, consider the, the times we're, we're living in will have such a big impact on uh, not only the agenda, but what is achievable in the new administration. And uh, just uh, you know, a week ago, President-elect Biden laid out his main health care policy priorities, and they were really fourfold. Number one, uh, improving management around the COVID crisis and sort of putting his, putting his imprint, imprint around what they're doing on, on uh, COVID and the COVID response from a federal perspective. Number two, restoring and expanding some of the insurance uh, policies uh, circling around the Affordable Care Act or, or Obamacare, which again uh, was a legacy issue, not only for former President Obama, but also for President Obama's then Vice President, President-elect Biden. So look for him to sort of reverse some of the moves made by the Trump administration around the ACA, as well as expand where possible, especially through regulatory and executive action, some of those provisions around the Affordable Care Act. Number three, number three excuse me, uh, taking it one step beyond uh, just the Affordable Care Act and looking at you know the Medicare program, Medicaid programs, um, other programs, and looking to expand access to care and improve quality of care, you know, where possible. And some of the same uh, reforms we've seen play out over the last decade, just sort of meeting the times as we are now. And then lastly, they have made a, uh, a strong focus and, and messaged and signaled that they want to put some focus into uh, reducing certain disparities, especially racial disparities um, in the healthcare system and in the insurance system. So sort of to be determined there, but I think looking at those four priorities as things that I think the Biden administration four years from now will certainly use as a, a measuring stick of the progress they've made in various different areas. Well, that's great. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate you giving our listeners an update on where things stand as of the morning of November 18th. As you noted, uh, we'll, we'll definitely be conversing with you in the future and uh, look forward to your future updates as things move along here. So a special thanks to Chris Emper, our government affairs advisor, joining Dr. Betty Rabinowitz, Dr. Marty Lustick, and myself today. Thanks for listening in. You know where the subscribe button is. On behalf of NextGen Advisors, this is Graham Brown. Thanks very much and have a great day.